It's one of these things that you kind of wake up in 2011, 2012, and everyone's like, we've just been through a revolution, but it wasn't it wasn't like a single invention. It was like a single well, and then suddenly like everyone's like running around excited and high-fiving, like we're, we're living in a new world. It took us, you know, a course of probably 13, 14 years right. to, to figure out like what had happened. That was Gary Cernovitz, oil and gas industry analyst and the author of The Green and the Black, the complete story of the shale revolution, the fight over fracking, and the future of energy. Welcome to What Turns You On, the Colorado Oil and Gas Association podcast presented by CH2M. I'm Steve Ludwig, your host. We interviewed Gary at COGA's 2016 Rocky Mountain Energy Summit, so you'll hear some background noise during the interview. Gary has some great insight into the current state of the industry, the importance of technological innovation, the history of shale, and how that revolution continues to impact the global oil and gas market. Casey Henderson, our standard co-host, was out sick for most of the event, so Nils Magelson joins me at the microphone. Nils has been with the Koga podcast from the very beginning as our engineer and co-producer and director. Before we get into the interview, we'd like to thank CH2M for sponsoring this podcast. Headquartered here in Colorado, CH2M helps the oil and gas industry with upstream, midstream, and downstream work across the project lifecycle. This includes engineering, project management, siting, licensing, permitting, and water and wastewater management. For more information, check out ch2m.com. Okay, with the business out of the way, on to the podcast. Uh, we're back at the Colorado Oil and Gas Association Rocky Mountain Energy Summit, our energy evolution, the theme for this year's conference. That's and it. joining us is Gary Cernovitz, who's written the book, The Green and the Black, the complete story of the shale revolution, the fight over fracking, and the future of energy. He used to work at Goldman Sachs. He works at a private equity firm now. All sorts of stuff to talk about. Gary, welcome. Thank you for having me. Uh, tell us a little bit about your book. Yeah, the origin of the book is I have sort of an eccentric background where I work for... Uh, you worked at a circus? Uh, you know, <laughs> I, in, some, in some ways, right? Trampoline, trampoline. I was very good at trampoline acrobatics. I th- always thought private equity firms had to be a little bit weird, but maybe yes. I just don't know. Yes. Um, Sorry, I interrupted. Please. No, no, no. Yeah, some eccentric good. background. I've, it, where I've uh, spent my most of my professional career... Uh, doing uh, oil and gas on the investing side. Mm-hmm. We also buy fields directly. We invest in other oil and gas companies. But I've also been a writer. I quit for six years, lived the East Village uh, in New York City, eating you know, pasta for every meal and, and, and a bagel for every other lunch, you know, and, and, and trying to stretch it. And, 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 and I never really thought I wanted to write about the oil and gas business particularly. I wanted to keep my writing side once and my professional side. But as the shale revolution kind of, kind of just took over the public conversation. I was actually about to sit down and write another novel. Um, and you've written you've written two novels. Two novels. Yes. And I continue to write like book reviews mm-hmm. and essays on really the guess. And then it was just sort of the idea for the book, and became clear. It's like sort of this is what I should be doing. Interesting. And uh, really kind of uh, sort of uh, one Sunday morning, I kind of went down ready to write a novel. And I came out kind of with the outline of this book kind of in my head. Oh, very exciting. So what's interesting is as we look at the history of the. Um, the shell revolution, as you aptly call it. What's fascinating to me looking back is that no one saw it coming. Or is that just the way I understand it? No, absolutely. I mean, because that's just bizarre to me. Like, we have all these really smart people making a lot of damn money trying to figure this stuff out, and no one saw this crazy thing about to happen. And, and the funny thing about it is, no one saw it coming even as it was starting to happen. So there's kind of 
1998 was when the Barnett Shale was cracked by George Mitchell. And so that's in north of Dallas. And it's, uh, it was the first, and it was done in like a very high gas price environment. So even after it was done, it's not like the industry just suddenly, we can unlock the shales in Colorado and Pennsylvania and everywhere. It's sort of like, well, George Mitchell has this sort of found a way in this kind of weird little Barnett to find a way to... And where is Barnett located in uh, Texas? Dallas. Dallas, okay. Basic, Dallas-Fort mm-hmm. Worth, a little bit to the northwest there. And so really it, it took... Um, probably about 10 years after that for people to realize that it worked on the natural gas side. On the oil side, it didn't really start happening, you know, in full until after the financial crisis in 2008. And so it's really kind of, it's one of these things that you kind of wake up in 2011, 2012, and everyone's like, we've just been through a revolution, but it wasn't, it wasn't like a single invention. It was like a single well. And then suddenly like everyone's like running around excited and high-fiving, like we're, we're living in a new world. It took us, you know, course of probably 13, 14 years right. to, to figure out like what had happened. Do you think people were just so used to, like, the, the oil and gas industry seems very tradition-bound, and yeah. like, we've done it this way, this is the way we've always done it, we've been around for 80 years, we know how to get things done. Was that part of the problem? I think that's part of the issue. The other issue is like, just people who know about shale reservoirs and how really bad they are in terms of naturally giving up oil and gas would look at them and just like this doesn't work right. so it's so it's not just like you know just sort of a general like don't drill in the shales it's a it's like a sucker's bet it was also these things i i kind of mentioned uh, like a shale gas uh reservoir there's a thing called porosity which is like how much oh, rock a new word a new porosity porosity, mm, porosity. Word of the day. okay Pur- there we go. that's <laughs> like smarter already um which is like you know, people kind of have this image of oil and gas reservoirs. It's like there's this fishbowl underneath, yeah. and then you put your straw in and you suck out the fishbowl. Mm-hmm. But actually, oil and gas is kept in like poor spaces of rocks. And there's some fields that it's almost like a dried sponge. You can actually see them with the naked eye. Shale gas is in these pores that are so small, one six thousandth of a human hair. So it, the, just the assumption was like, how could you possibly get right. the gas out of it? And it really took you know, 17 years for the original one to actually figure out a way. And after that, it's like, well, you can't do it for oil or only works in the Barnett because there's other sort of kind of unique things to happen. So it really is one where it kind of defies uh, the logic for it to happen. And then all the implications of America's place in the world, American production, the sort of price, which is the one that's most obvious now, you know, also we're in kind of the slow motion um, that people didn't predict. And, you know, and we're in the investing business, right? Um, and they're never wrong. We are. I mean, we're just we have a <laughs> we have a fund we invested over the right. course of a few years, where it's like, if you had any inkling that the shale revolution was going to happen, you would not have made any of these investments. Oh. And we look back on it, and it's just like we're. I, I, as much as you can make fun of, you know, you know, human fallibility, we look back on it and say, it's like we put other people's money to work uh, in ways that are, you know, you know, stuff here in Colorado and like mm-hmm. tight gas that, you know, it just isn't competitive against what's in Pennsylvania, right. Canadian oil sands, like stuff right. in the North Sea. And it's just really is incredible how, how, you know, really the click happened and, and you know, we're living in the world that the right. shale's created. Well, it's also interesting to see how during the downturn a lot of companies have gotten so much better at getting more out of either wells that they had already fracked or through new technology. Yep, exactly. And since you follow this so closely, I'm always curious, like, what, there's no way to ask this question without sounding, like, I want you to gaze into a crystal ball. Yes. <laughs> but, like, how much more technology do you think, not more technology, but 
technological advancement will continue to enhance what they can get out of these shale plays? I mean, I, I think, you know, it's going to go on for a few more years. Mm-hmm. It's not only the technology to uh, um, enhance the, the individual well economics. It's also the technology to make it better in local communities mm-hmm. in terms of noise dampening, in terms of, you know, so there's a lot of innovation. That technology advancement, which, you know, roughly speaking, is a very sort of number everyone in the industry uses, kind of like 15, 10 to 15% a year productivity improvement. That is fighting. That's huge. That is huge, but it's fighting against two things when we think about how much it costs to extract. One is, during the downturn, the oil field service industry has been driven to almost bankruptcy and they're charging prices of like, just stay in business prices. At some point, you know, you're gonna have to pay the guy who drills the well enough uh, to have him not go bankrupt. Right. And then the other thing is, you know, there's been about 100,000, 101,000 modern horizontal shale wells drilled. There are better places to drill and worse places. So the productivity improvement isn't very important, but also eventually we're going to go to worse reservoirs, and that's going to make it a little bit lower. So there's, you have these three factors about oil field service pricing, mm-hmm. the technology, and whether that, I think people kind of lazily, I do it lazily, just say, uh, it's all going to wash out that oil is going to continue to be 40 or 50 bucks a barrel in terms of the break-even. But those three forces are really um, working in pretty uh, pretty dynamic, each of them. And it's you know people spend their entire lives trying to predict how it's, how right. it's going to come out. Right. So when you uh, decide to write this book, was it more about like you're not seeing anyone cover this? Yeah. I, you know, the, the precipitating incident that happened like a week before that, as I was writing a book review for... Uh, about another book that came out on fracking for a magazine in New York. And I got a letter from the editor during the, the, uh, um, the edits, and they were just kind of filled with, like, just sort of, like a space alien. Uh, and this is, like, one of the most respected <laughs> men in New York. But he's, he said, you know, one of them is like, you say people can frack for oil. I don't think our readers understand that. And this is after the Bakken was producing a million barrels a day, yeah. I mean, more than the U.K. So part of it was just the inspiration for the book was you know, there had to be there were some a couple good books that have come out, the Frackers, this one called The Boom, but nothing had been done once the shale revolution was fully known its implications. And it was trying to, you know, I was trying to write for everyone as like a fast-paced primer that explains all the issues. And it doesn't come, you know, generally positive about the shale revolution, but talks very seriously about the negative impact. But it was done for, uh, you know, just for anyone who has any curiosity, how can you read this in one cross-country flight be entertained, um, learn a lot of facts, mm-hmm. but also learn the facts you need to do with your you know, moral compass that okay. you think this is good or bad. And you know, and I clearly you know, put my cards on the table, but you can read this book and still say it's not worth it um, for a couple of reasons. Okay. Now, you're, uh, what's the private equity firm you work for now? Lime Rock. Okay. So I've, there's a number floating around uh, the Wall Street Journal and the Financial Times, and who knows how accurate it is. It says there's $100 billion dollars and private equity funny money spread across a number of you guys looking, you know, still sitting around waiting to get in. Is that going to happen sooner than later? Or what do you think is going to go on with that? You know, it's not going to all find the home that everyone wants for it, which is to find, you know, the Delaware Basin is now the hot basin in uh, Reeves County in West Texas. Everyone wants the time machine to put their, you know, their billions to work you know, before it was discovered and buy the land cheap and then, you know, drill up. And that's how a lot of the fortunes were made in the shale revolution is kind of being early in a play. There is, you know, the Delaware, the scoop stack in Oklahoma, Oklahoma? Oklahoma have, feel kind of like, 
the last waltz a bit, you know, where it's, uh, you know, it, it's, it, there's a lot of frenzy and a lot of consolidation around it. So for the private equity, it's, it's really not, it's a challenge to find, you know, the returns people are expecting and what they're going to end up doing. Which is what? Kind of doubling to tripling okay. your money over the course okay. of five to eight years. You know, in what they're going to do is buy public, you know, finance public companies, they're going to go, and it's being done, they're going to buy more mature properties, like, um, you know, in, here in Colorado, there's a lot of legacy gas that, you know, someone can buy and operate efficiently, and though that's not a double your money kind of business for the most part, but I think a lot of that money is going to find it, and then, and then the big question is the oil field service industry, you know, has been so decimated, is there a time when a lot of, you know, are we, first of all, are we going to need, you know, we used to have 2,000 rigs drilling in the United States, we now have about 460 are we going to need, we're not, no one thinks we're going to need 2,000, but it makes a difference if we think we're going to need 1,200 or 800 for us to grow again. Right. And so, you know, that may be a home for it, but it, it's, you know, I was joking, uh, we have uh, one of our largest investors is out here in Colorado, and I was joking with them that, you know, the private equity business, they never return the money to the investors <laughs> and say, we don't have good ways to invest it. That's like no fun. That's no fun. You know, that's, that's so they end up investing the money in some way. So they, are the, and again, I'm not asking you to, to, say anything about your company yeah. but just in general so will they I would see like private equity money and this is based on just watching the industry buy a bunch of unrelated assets but they're close enough bundle them together and then sell them off when the oil price or the gas prices go up significantly is that will somebody try that 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 has not been a very popular strategy mm -hmm. to date which is buy stuff that only makes sense at 80 or 90 dollars a barrel mm -hmm. and that's you can make 20 times your money if you're right, and you lose all your money if you're wrong, that so far most people are trying to find ways to find the smaller positions within the shales that have already been proven. And a lot, and a lot of that is, or they're trying to do, you know, invest in, as I said, public companies or buy kind of mature legacy, uh, mature legacy properties. And so I don't, I, it'll be an interesting to see if finally the money, because these funds have fixed terms. And so finally see if people say, listen, we just got to make some big bets right. and we're going to do that on the Powder River Basin, which is in Wyoming. And uh, people have, you know, not a lot of private equity has gone in there, but it's huge. Right. I mean, it's, you know, large chunk of Wyoming and see if we can make it work or we're willing to be patient before uh, oil prices get higher. Now, Colorado, the U.S. Geological Survey just said Colorado shale formation has the second largest uh, proven reserves after the Marcellus Shale in the United States. Do you th uh, for natural gas? Do you yeah. think that will have an impact on development in the Rocky Mountain area, specifically Colorado? Is that gonna? Are people gonna jump on that? Yeah, I mean, I think most of the activity has been on the Niobrara, mm -hmm. which is an oil play. Right. And uh, you know, uh, you know, you know, Colorado. The interesting thing about the Rockies has been they were the shales of you know 2003, 2004, where there's been a huge you know, challenge for America for the last 20 years is like, where are we going to get natural gas? And it was Canada in the 90s when I entered the business, then it was the Rockies. And it was because the Rockies are, you know, it's you know, in the mountains, you know, you're, it's more expensive to drill than in a flat, you know, Kansas plain. And then the shales came. Mm -hmm. So whether or not, you know, I think our view is the Marcellus, which is kind of basically disrupted all the other shales because it's so huge. It's so cheap that it's going to be hard for a pure gas play anywhere in the country for, for many years, probably, to be able to compete against that. It's just, there's the Utica shale underneath right. it. But I think, you know, in terms of Colorado and the opportunities in the Niobrara, I think my guess... But it was, I, the, it was the Peons Basin? Yeah, on the gas side. Yeah. And, and that's, it's just, it's a little bit higher cost. Got it. And if you can make, um, make money at $2 
in, in uh, per thousand cubic feet in Pennsylvania? Is someone going to do it for three dollars and fifty cents right. in the pants? At some point, it may make sense, but it may be in the next five. So, or just seasons. to provide our audience some some numbers, natural gas is trading at around two dollars when we're recording this. Around two dollars and seventy-five cents per million British thermal unit. And don't ask me what exactly that translates into. Before the shale revolution kicked in, in the early 2000s, natural gas was up to $14, yep. if I remember correctly. Does that sound right to you? Yeah, I mean, it spiked during like the hurricanes, because yeah. we used to get so much from the Gulf of Mexico, but it was kind of, yeah, 8 to 10 was oh, kind of the normal. Okay, yeah. great. So 275 compared to 8 or 10 is massive, yeah. like huge, and that's having all sorts of things. Yeah. So when you say... Per, that price figure is cheaper to because it's gas is so cheap you're not gonna make a lot of money if it's expensive to drill is what you're saying yeah and it just it's that's a very long way to ask a very simple question <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> switching to the you, you mentioned about your book and, and the environmental thing do you see that any meeting of the minds between the environmental community and the oil and gas industry yeah I mean there's around this around hydraulic hydraulic fracturing in particular there's two aspects to the environmental um, there's the local environmental you know a person who lives in Weld County is this going to pollute my water? Is this going to so be... So Weld counties in Colorado. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And, and then there's the climate change issue. Mm-hmm. And there are very separate dynamics there. I think you're seeing in the local environmental, uh, local environmental debate, the industry has gotten a lot better you know, instigated by, you know, frankly, um, you know, sort of the environmental activists. And, uh, you know, it's not fun. I mean, uh, uh, to drill and frack uh, a well, it's a construction project. It goes away after after it's done. But it's not fun to have that. But I think the industry has had a lot of innovation, a lot of growing up um, in talking to communities like that. And I, and, and I think there's also been a lot of, frankly, results. We've drilled, as I mentioned, 100,000 modern shale wells. And so there isn't, you know, the mass devastation going on where, poison water and you know and, and every you know and so there's 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 enough good experiences that have happened that that debate is still happening but at a lower level uh you know what i call like the gasland debate that kind of that spark mm-hmm. the climate change is a much more tricky issue um to talk about there is you know a seemingly a very good meeting of the minds when it comes to natural gas displacing coal. Right. And in the book, I talk about, like, Aubrey McClendon, who was kind of like the king of the frackers, was at one point... So, just so... Yeah, so give, give some background on Aubrey McClendon. He founded Chesapeake Ch- Energy, and, and, and which ju- sort of led the deal, right? I mean, it was... You know, he didn't invent anything, but he was like a wild man in terms of he would lease up as much acreage as he can, take on as much debt as he could, and really was the kind of... Everyone was kind of chasing Aubrey huh. to uh, in order to kind of lease... And, 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 and this is in the early gas shale place. He was, for a period, the single largest donor to the Sierra Club oh, uh, interesting. and and uh, secretly and when the Sierra Club fi- you know basically you know he's like publicly you know did some sessions with the Sierra Club but when they found the donations something I think I, I can't it's in the book but it's probably I think it was something on like 25 percent they kicked out the head of the Sierra Club but that was based on what you would think is the very common sense alliance between natural gas producers mm-hmm. and people who want to stop the use of coal right and so there is that it has gone south I mean, there, you know, in terms of that alliance, Robert F. Kennedy Jr., a prominent environmentalist, came out very pro-gas. And it's just the, it is just, it is just like the, like, they, they tried to be nice to the oil and gas business. And it's just the backlash they got from their colleagues. The Environmental Defense Fund does really awesome work of being like the, but they're, but they're a little bit of sort of the, you know, the other environmentalists think of it, they're like the industry stooges, which they're not. But they've tried to do some very, very good, pragmatic, practical work. But for a lot of it, I think that conversation has gone south in terms of embracing gas 
um, partly because there's a methane discussion, partly I think just for kind of cultural reasons. And then, you know, and then, but I, you know, who like the displacement of coal with gas, both self-interestedly as a person who invests in gas producers and, and also as someone who cares about climate change, the one thing that people tend to not talk about a lot is, you know, the shale revolution has lowered the price of oil and stimulated the use of oil. So I, I mentioned in the, uh, in the speech I just gave here that a statistic just came out that 27.5% of all hybrid and electric car owners in the first quarter of this year traded in their car for another hybrid or electric car. The percentage who traded in their car, their hybrid or electric car for an SUV, 34%. Wow. So oh, you have a, wow. yeah, I mean, it's, a, it's, 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 you know, it's, it's like, you know, people didn't like the Prius because they were concerned. They just like the Bronco was too expensive to fill up, right. you know, wow. so, so, so I think, you know, that does have a pretty profound impact on when we think about the oil the use of oil, because mm-hmm. as I as I talk about, you know, oil use is now going to have to stop because people are going to want to stop, not because we're running out of it, right. which was the fear ten years ago. Correct. That yeah. whole peak oil thing exactly. is just gone, yeah. gone, just gone. totally gone. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, uh, where can people go to find out more about you as an author, the book? Um, uh, you know, all very interesting stuff. You got a website? Yeah, website, and uh, unfortunately, it's my name, which is uh, not the easiest to spell. But my first name, it's just www, and then Gary G A R Y, then the last name Cernovitz, S-E-R-N-O-V-I-T-Z uh, dot com. I got to have a cooler name uh, to, to do it, but it's <laughs> GaryCernovitz.com. And luckily, bet, if you I Google bet. anything close to Gary Cernovitz, they'll give because there's It'll not a lot of competitors. Yeah, yeah. Right. <laughs> and the easy thing is like, when you went to buy that domain name, it's like, oh, it's, I, it's mine. It's <laughs> it's not, yeah, I dealt the same thing. Right, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and I was like, oh, okay, great. Uh, is there anything that we didn't ask you about that you, that you think we should we should be thinking about? Well, I mean, there's a lot of, you know, it's 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 a more probably, you know, this is self-interestedly as a person who's written a book, it is a more fascinating topic that goes into more aspects of everyone's life than they probably imagine when they just think about whether this is gas land and whether that's true or not. And so I gas land, just so people know, was that documentary, documentary from uh, HBO in 2010. Okay. And so that, that, that this is, you know, the book spends a lot of time thinking about some pretty profound issues we face in energy, the environment, the American economy, America's place in the world, that come off from what is frankly, you know, a pretty weird thing of like how we complete oil and gas wells. Are you working on anything now? I am uh, still recovering from it, and I have a, t- a two and a half month old child oh, that, 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 that I'm working yeah. on uh, raising, and my wife doesn't, you can't go away and uh, hide yourself <laughs> yeah. away from it. But. So the book is The Green and the Black, The Complete Story of the Shale Revolution, The Fight Over Fracking, and the Future of Energy. I'm sure that's available everywhere. Every, everywhere. Awesome. Thanks. Thank you so much for your time, Gary. Gary, thanks. Thanks for inviting me. been listening to What Turns You On, the Koga podcast presented by CH2M. CH2M helps the oil and gas industry with upstream, midstream, and downstream work across the project lifecycle. This includes engineering, project management, siting licensing permitting, and water and wastewater management. For more information, check out ch2m.com. For more podcasts and to learn more about the Colorado Oil and Gas Association, go to koga.org.